you if you'd bring your own Bible with you, if you've got one, um, to save Mark's legs next week. And uh, if you've got a Bible with you, we're going to turn to Acts chapter 2. So that's where we're reading from this morning. Okay, let's pray, shall we? Thank you, God, for your word and for the standard it sets and for the things that, that it says are, are normal. I pray, God, that you'd help us to see the Bible as normal and presenting a normal way of living life. And we ask you, God, to pour out your spirit in this place and to cause your word to be alive in our hearts and in our experience. Amen. Amen. Good. Okay. So this is the second week of our little series that we're doing called Spreading Life Together. Uh, And it's really a journey that we're going on as a church, a four-week journey, uh, looking at what is it that God is asking of us as a church over the next few years. Uh, And last week, if you weren't here, uh, I outlined, in a sense, uh, what the leadership believe is, is God's call on us as a church. And if you weren't here, it's really, really important that you listen to what I said, not because I think I'm an extraordinary communicator, but because I think that what is the, the content of it is really, really important. And so you can either do that, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, you can uh, download it from our website, listen to it on our website, or Mark and the team have made these beautiful CDs which you can get on the Welcome Lounge. But if you weren't here last week, uh, and either this is your place, and you know that you need to listen to it, or you're new in this week, and you're thinking, oh, I've come in week two of a series, that's frustrating, uh, you can listen to it to week one, that'd be really, really good. And then also, if you didn't pick it up, please really pick up one of these booklets, which actually I'm really proud of, it says really clearly what it is that, that we think God's asking of us. So if you haven't read one of those, then please really pick one up afterwards, uh, and have a, pl- a, a play through it, a pray, a pray through it, that would be really good. Okay, Uh, if I could briefly recap on what I said last week, what I said was that God is asking us to spread out as we grow as a church. And what that means is that we should start to see this region and not just this city as our parish and the people in it uh, as people with whom our destiny is is in some way linked. Uh, and, um, uh, And the nub of it all really is that God is asking us to be one church that meets in many places all over this region. So the moment you are uh, meeting in one place, I've just been at another place down the road, uh, that's two, uh, and uh, there'll be another service tonight which is back in the first place. I'm going to tie myself up in knots here. But the point is, uh, not just two places, but lots of places all over this region, which is very exciting. Um, A couple of things, first of all, by way of an update from what I said last week and what God's been doing and saying over the last week. The first thing is, Um, what's been brilliant, four people so far, and I'm hoping that more will come forward if this is them, uh, have said that God had already told them what was going to happen in a dream, even before I said anything last week. Uh, And there were four people, three of the dreams were remarkably similar. They were about, oh, we were... It was us, it was still our church, we were, you know, I, I knew lots of the people, but we were, we were worshipping in a different place, and I didn't recognise the place where we were. Uh, and also James and Victoria Juice seemed to be, have some kind of role of prominence in that place, and I didn't really understand that. So God had already said that to four different people, and they were like, oh, now it makes sense, now the dream makes sense, which is amazing. 
and I wonder whether there are just one or two other people. But there is a sense that God is confirming to us all the time what, what we thought, which is brilliant. The other thing is uh, that already the word is spreading and there are already people in other churches who are getting in contact to say things. Uh, and the brilliant news is that so far it's all been positive. Uh, and um, uh, lots of people have been saying things like, oh, I'm just so excited for you as a church, and you just go for it. You, you just give it everything you've got, which has been amazing. Um, but I just wanted to say, if, if there's anyone in our church who you're having conversations with people in other churches, maybe they're asking stuff about what we're doing, or uh, uh, you just find yourself speaking about it, um, would absolutely love you to direct those people to our website where the information, like one of these um, booklets is actually uh, up online in a sort of an electronic way so that people can read it. Because what we want to try and avoid is the kind of Chinese whispers thing where, where, where untruths become worse untruths over time. And we really want, if anyone knows anything about what's happening in our church, for it to be based on what is actually happening. So please will you direct people towards our website, that would be fantastic. Okay, so uh, we're reading in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. And what we're asking today as a question is this. Uh, as you grow as a church, how do you stay healthy? What, is it, what are the marks of a healthy church? What are the things that we need to make sure we do and don't do in order to stay on track? It could be so easy as uh, things change and develop to find ourselves off beam a little bit or off track. And we want to make sure that we're doing the right thing. Uh, and um, so how do we stay healthy as a church? And we're going to read from Acts chapter 2, where um, a, a little group of people, 120 people, have been meeting in an upper room. The Holy Spirit has kind of exploded into the room, and suddenly their little church of 120 becomes a moderate-sized church of 3,120, uh, soon to be even bigger than that. Uh, and um, we're going to read from the bit where the Apostle Peter is standing up in front of a crowd of thousands of people, and he's preaching the gospel to them. So, uh, Acts chapter 2, and we're going to read, what did I say, verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Good question. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Bless you. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. 
Okay, so we're asking the question, how will we stay healthy as we grow? And the first thing is this, we stay healthy when we give God the throne, when we let God be the God and us be the people. Um, the writer of the book of Acts, who's called Luke, he's trying to make it absolutely clear to everyone who's reading that God is the one who's deciding that all this is going to happen. And he's been prophesying it for years before. Uh, and this is a God thing. You know, it's not that the first disciples, they you know, didn't gather together in the upper room and say, right, we need a strategy for growth. You know, we need a vision statement. That's what we need. Let's, let's write a document. Uh, and uh, what do we need? Well, we need... Uh, Contemporary worship, yeah, tick. You know, good band, tick. Uh, sound quality, good, tick. Uh, engaging and dynamic speaker, tick. Uh, we, uh, even if I do say so myself. Uh, um, we need, um, uh, you know, great coffee and uh, home-baked cookies, tick. Brilliant, there we are, there's a strategy for growth right there. That's not what they did. The Holy Spirit burst into their room. And within moments, they found themselves preaching the gospel to thousands of people and thousands of people being added to their church. It was a God thing. And right, th the, the, uh, right throughout this passage, you know, for example, it says, um, the people, they're cut to the heart, verse 37. Cut to the heart. Now, I think that probably someone who's a, a good communicator could stand up here and could... Um, inflict a few wounds, you know, could, could use some emotive illustrations and stuff, start to make people feel a little bit, you know, different or whatever. But only God can cut people to the heart. And then it says later on, verse 41, it doesn't say, they added 3,000 people that day. It says, 3,000 people were added to them that day. And uh, if you're wondering who it was who was doing the adding, verse 47, and the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. The truth is, in a moment like this, it's all too easy to get carried away with ourselves and to think, yeah, come on, we can do this, you know. We've got a vision, we've got a strategy. And the danger is that we become a little bit like the guy who's got this big sailing boat and what he does is he straps an outboard motor to the back and he goes, look at this, we're really motoring now, we've really got some speed up, look at that momentum. Uh, uh, you know, this is, this is all God this is. And it's like, no, it's not actually, it's not the wind of God, it's just you've strapped an outboard motor to your boat. We need to be the kind of church who puts the sails up as high as we can and tries to catch the wind of God. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will build my church. We have to let God have his throne in our church. Um, the reason why we know, in fact, there are two reasons why we know that, God, that, that they were the kind of church who gave God the throne. The first one is this. They prayed a lot. Uh, verse 42, they devoted themselves to prayer. And again and again, you see these, this group of people desperate to try and stay in line with what God wants. Uh, significant moments and also seemingly insignificant moments, they're praying. You know, when there's, tw there's 11 apostles and they know that they need 12, they don't just go, oh yeah, you'll do. They pray and they ask God. When Peter and John get released from prison, they go immediately to a prayer meeting and the church gathers and prays. And uh, in Acts chapter 6, when the widows and orphans start uh, revolting because they're not getting fed in the right way or some people get more than others. 
the first thing that they do is pray. Constantly communicating to God that they depend on Him and that they want Him to be in the throne. And um, I don't know whether you've grasped yet, those of you who were here last week or have heard the talk uh, online or whatever, that what we believe God is asking of us is massive and also amazingly difficult. You know, what we're asking is for God to release nearly half a million pounds into our midst to be able to pay for this thing. We're asking for what currently happens on two sites to be multiplied out to six over the next few years. What we're asking is for uh, something that actually is quite luxurious. We, you know, we have two sites, but they're only about 400 metres apart. And yet we feel like God's asking us to do stuff that's potentially 40 miles apart or more. And so if we grasp even slightly how massive and how difficult this thing is, then the only response to that is to pray. Um, and just to highlight again, uh, we're meeting uh, over the next two weeks. We're calling the church to prayer. That's what we're doing, actually. We're calling the church to pray and to fast about all of this stuff. Uh, and um, if you haven't uh, already clocked onto it, uh, we're meeting on... Uh, Wednesday night, which has been in the diary for ages, so hopefully that's been in your diary for a long time as well, uh, and also Thursday morning this week, and then next week it'll be uh, Tuesday night instead of Wednesday, Tuesday night and Thursday morning, and we just encourage you to come uh, to as much of that as you possibly can, and also to fast, and it might be that some of you are unfamiliar with the whole fasting thing, or it's not something that you've done for a while or whatever, but really encourage you, don't just leave it to everyone else to have a shot, why don't you have a shot of fasting? And if you're, you don't have a clue what fasting is all about, um, I did a little talk about a year ago on the subject of fasting. It's on the front page of our website at the moment. And also, here we go, uh, the team has produced a, bit, uh, a little CD of, of that as well. So please really listen to that if that would be helpful to you. But we'd love it if everyone would pray and fast together and we'll seek God about all of this stuff because that's the right response. Okay, the second reason we know that... Uh, that it was a God thing and that they were allowing God to be God, is that there's all kinds of miracles and signs and wonders happening. And it just occurred to me that actually, uh, if, if you've got a church of 120 people and then suddenly it becomes 3,120 people, one of the first things you'd be tempted to do is to try and bring a bit of order into things. You know, let's try and just make it manageable. And so you'd be like, right, what we'll do, we'll meet together, we'll have two songs, then we'll teach, and then we'll have another two songs, and then we'll have a, a wheat tea and a rich tea biscuit, and then we'll go home. But that's not what they did. They sought God for more. And you see, later on, uh, just after um, Peter and John had been released from prison, they're saying, God, we want to see more miracles and more signs and wonders. And they gave more space to God, the Holy Spirit, to do whatever he wants to do. So we stay healthy, oh, go on, when we give God the throne. The second one is we stay healthy when we preach the gospel with courage and clarity. In this picture, even though um, the writer is wanting to make it absolutely clear that it's a God thing, it's also true that Peter had a very significant responsibility. And his responsibility was to stand up in front of his city and preach the gospel, to put the gospel out there. And if he hadn't done that, then 3,000 people would not have been added to the church. And it's the same for us. We have to put the gospel out there to the people who live in our region. 
In fact, there are 464,720 people who live in our region, nearly half a million people. And uh, almost all of those people do not know Jesus and are not headed for heaven. Roughly, or more than, nine out of ten people who live in our region people who we you know, meet at the school gate, people who we study alongside, people who we work with, people who we go to the gym with, people who we live next door to. Roughly nine out of ten of those people never set foot anywhere near a church from one year to the next. And they need to hear and respond to the gospel. And it's also true that there are thousands, in fact tens of thousands of people in our region who used to be part of the church and who used to be walking with the Lord, who currently aren't. Uh, and the statistic is something like, in the UK, across the UK, for every one person who's currently part of a church, there are four people who used to be. Um, across the UK as a whole at the moment, actually amazingly, the, the statistics show that the church is growing again for the first time in 50 or 60 years or more, which is amazing. And in fact, in places like London, the church is kind of exploding with new life. The Anglican Church in London has grown by 70% over the last 20 years, since 1990. It's amazing. There aren't really any statistics, full statistics, for what's happening in the northeast of Scotland, but it seems pretty clear that the picture is very different here. Uh, and I have been able to get hold of st some statistics from the Church of Scotland. Um, and I'm sure that their statistics represent what's happening across lots of streams and denominations in this region. And in the Church of Scotland, in three years, 2009, 2010, 2011, the Church of Scotland lost 3,642 people. And almost all of those died. So it's not that there are masses of people walking out on church, it's that the congregations are so elderly that the Lord's taking them home. And we have a responsibility to think through what our response to stuff like that is. You know, we, we have to d decide. To not decide, to not do anything, to not respond, is a response and a decision in itself, and a very heartless one. And we'll have to stand before God one day and say, this is how we responded. This is what we did. This is what we tried. To seek and save the lost. And uh, let's be clear, to put it in a different way, if we were to um, preach the gospel to as many people as we possibly could all across this region, in, a, in as many different ways as we could think of, and if God did something miraculous, a, a kind of a Pentecostal ingathering like there is here, and if the Lord added, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people across all these different places where we're going to do church, and let's say we grew to about 4,000 people, which is an outrageous number to even think of, in real terms, all we've done is wound the clock back three years. And so the situation is absolutely desperate. And thank God that there are loads of great churches in this region who are doing brilliant gospel work, who are God-fearing, Bible-teaching, gospel-proclaiming 
churches right away across this region. And, uh, you know, God blessed them. God increased them. But we're not responsible for their faithfulness. We're only responsible for ours. Um, which of us wasn't inspired by the uh, Olympic athletes? You know, uh, uh, I, I'm not in any way sporty, which will come as a huge shock to some of you. Uh, but uh, I don't really get sport most of the time, and I rarely watch it. But I watched loads over the Olympics and the Paralympics, and I found it incredibly inspiring. And that my favourites were the tiny little miniature um, uh, gymnasts, you know, who looked like if you were to shake their hands, you might snap their hands because they looked so tiny. And, and fragile, and yet they could do these amazing kind of dong, 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 you know, kind of things. It was just amazing. Did that create a good picture for you there? Is it like, oh, we, now, we, now we see what you mean. Uh, and um, uh, I, I just found it amazing. What I love, my favourite part of the television coverage was always just before the final of the final kind of a thing, the very last moment, the last time someone was going to row their boat or spring across the thing. Uh, this is, I'm not using technical language here, obviously. That might confuse some of you. But uh, I loved how they did this kind of backstory moment, you know, where they went back and, and, they, and they looked at these people, their lives at home. And it was like, you know, this little gymnast girl, she's been uh, doing gymnastics since three months before she was born. And, and, you know, she spends 28 hours a day in, you know, deep kind of practice or whatever you call it. And... Um, there's always a bit of a story about how, at a certain point, the family ran out of money and the parents had to sell a lung or something, you know, to pay for this coaching. And uh, it's all amazing, isn't it? The, the sacrifice that they didn't eat McDonald's for eight years, and uh, and it's all building. And then and then they come back to this moment where the little gymnast is standing there ready, and you're like, come on, you know, come on. I don't know. I, I've been trying to think about why I found it so inspiring. And I, I think the reason why, and it's maybe different for some people, but the reason I found it so inspiring was because they understood the brevity of their opportunity and they gave it everything they had. It's the same truth for us. Do we understand how little time we actually have and are we willing to give it absolutely everything? We stay healthy when we preach the gospel with courage and clarity. Uh, we stay healthy when we know what's more important. Taryn and I, just after we were married, uh, we drove down to Taryn's parents for Christmas. And uh, it was a lovely time. We had a great time. They gave us all kinds of really brilliant presents and some presents that weren't quite so brilliant, to be honest. Uh, I remember distinctly getting a whole series of um, uh, clay flying ducks that you put on the wall and, and uh, as a, yeah it, w it was a, you know, it was a hilarious joke <laughs> if you're listening to that mother-in-law um, and uh, yeah, it, it was um, yeah anyway we'll, we'll move over the, the ducks anyway the point is we, we, after we'd been there for a while we packed the car full of all our presents and the ducks and a whole bunch of other stuff and we drove home, and, and we hadn't been going driving very long, listening to the stereophonics, remember, really loudly. Uh, the, um, we were in a Rover car, which some of you don't even know what that is. Uh, we, as we were driving along, uh, there was a milk lorry coming the other way, and, it, and the, the carriageway was just so narrow that it was just about room for the milk lorry. 
and there was no room for us at all. And so me, you know, with lightning quick reactions, I sort of drove up onto the hedge, uh, and uh, we, we, the lorry came steaming past us, uh, and um, we just carried on skidding along on my gore for about another 50 metres, which was fun. Uh, and um, then we, we came to a stop. You have no idea how heavy a car door is when you have to lift it upwards rather than move it sideways. We, we got out of the car, and then we could smell petrol. And so in that moment, you've got to figure out what is really precious here that I would be devastated if I lost and what is just a really lovely thing to have. And so we quickly you know, got into the boot and just pulled some stuff out and then left the rest. And there was no big fireball or anything like that. We just went back later and picked up the rest of the stuff. But, <laughs> but the, point is, the point is that when you're under pressure you start to realise that even though some things feel really precious and important, they have to go in order to achieve what needs to be achieved. And uh, I'm sure that this is what the kind of decisions that they were making uh, in the early church. Lord, lots of things are really precious here, but now that we're 3,000 people or more, what do we have to let go of? There's a couple of things they had to let go of. The first thing is, in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, on the day of Pentecost, they were all together in one place. And that's the last time they can ever say that about the church. They were all together in one place. From that moment on, there were so many thousands of them, even though they met together in the temple courts. If they'd have all met together in the temple courts, all, you know, at some point, 15,000 or more people, then they never would have all fitted in. And if they had, they would have brought the temple to a standing stop. Um, the truth is that, that God is bringing us to a point where, where most Sundays we won't be able to all meet together in one place. But that's because God's adding more people. And that is more important. The other thing is, uh, when there's 120 people and you're all meeting in a room together every day, you can get to know each other really well. You know, you can know everything about each other. You can know what, you know, all your habits and all the different things and what's going on in your life and all of that. But when there's 3,120 people, it's no longer possible for everyone to know everyone. And uh, I know that there are some people in our church right now or over the last couple of years who are grieving that. I used to know everyone. I used to, you know, we used to, to be in really deep relationship with one another and actually now there are people serving me tea and coffee I have no idea who they are it is uncomfortable and I know like for example with Taryn I know that she's going through a sort of a mourning process at the moment of realising what this all means but we have to always be reaching out for one more we have to always be making room for one more because that's the heart of God We know what's more important, and so we have to do that. Okay, the next one. We stay healthy when we seek to be a biblical church. So their response to this enormous growth is immediately, we have to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. Right? We have to make sure that we've got everything straight, that there's truth right at the heart of this thing. And so they figured out, how do we gather all these people, sometimes in people's homes, sometimes um, in much larger gatherings, how do we make sure that we're, we're on track here? It's like having a massive, you know if you have a, a big oil tanker, like a super tanker, massive thing. How do you keep that from just 
you know, being blown around by the wind or just taken wherever the sea takes it. You've got to have a massive anchor. You've got to drop it right down and put it into solid rock to keep the thing from deviating from its position. And that's what we have to do. We have to devote ourselves to the teaching of the apostles, which is in the book. Um, some people would think that a biblical church was one which had a particular style of teaching or a church where we all went away every Sunday with notebooks full of you know, historical context and Greek, Greek declensions, or whatever the word is. But a biblical church is a church that devours the book and then puts it into practice. And in James chapter 1, the famous verse, it says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So a biblical church is a church of action. Also, a biblical church is a balanced church. I'm losing my voice. Hang on a sec. In, um, in all of human history, the most beautiful sound known to man is the roar of a V8 engine in full throttle. And if you disagree with me, then respectfully, you're wrong. Um, uh, but for a V8 engine to sing like that, it's got to have every single cylinder working perfectly. And in every single cylinder, there's got to be fuel, and there's got to be compression, and there's got to be a spark. And if that isn't really happening in one cylinder, regardless of how all the other cylinders are doing, then it doesn't sing. In fact, it makes a horrible noise, uh, and it lacks almost all of its power. And it kind of shudders in its mountings. A biblical church is a church that does it all that does the whole book, that wants to be balanced, that wants to make sure that it doesn't teach the Bible and neglect the poor, but that it teaches the Bible and serves the poor, loves one another, exhibits holiness, and raises up leaders, and passes the gospel on to the next generation, preaches the gospel to its region, and so on and so on. A biblical church is a church that does it all. It's a balanced church. A biblical church is a challenging church. And uh, the truth is, that if you come up against this book in any kind of up-close and personal way, then it starts to make you feel uncomfortable if you're doing it right. And uh, many of us will have been in situations where we've been sitting in a sermon a bit like this, and someone's preaching, and it's like, he's speaking directly to me. How does he know everything about my life? This is scary, and it's like, this is really uncomfortable, but actually, also, we love it because we're embracing the truth that God is speaking directly into our hearts. And lastly, a biblical church is an enduring church. I love a bit of a, you know, an old tale about revival. You know, I love, I love those stories about the 1859 revival in Aberdeen or the Hebridean revival in the 1950s, 40s. I love all that stuff. I was reading this week about a revival that happened in Wales in the uh, early 20th century, 1904-05. It was amazing. You know, God's presence was poured out thickly in, in this region in Wales, and people were becoming Christians in the street, just on their own, overcome by the presence of God. Uh, and um, they'd gather together, and they would have these meetings where they could barely stand up under the weight of the glory of God and all this kind of stuff. It was amazing. Um, tens of thousands of people became Christians you know, in a matter of weeks. And yet, ten years later, by the start of World War I, almost the whole lot had gone. 
there was hardly any evidence that there had ever been a revival in Wales by uh, you know, 1914-15. And uh, historians have kind of divided over what was the reason for that, but it does seem clear that one of the key reasons why all of these people becoming Christians, it was just like water being poured on, out on the ground, was because they didn't build it on a biblical basis, a biblical foundation. In fact, what they do is, uh, the Holy Spirit would come, all kinds of things would happen, the preacher would lay out on the floor behind the pulpit and the Bible would never be open for weeks at a time. A biblical church is an enduring church, he says, still not really able to speak. <coughs> Whoever thought that doing three services on the same day was a good idea. Right. Good. So, uh, we stay healthy when we teach the Bible and we centre our lives around the Bible. We stay healthy when we live like family. It says that they devoted themselves to fellowship. What does that mean? The word fellowship there is a, is a translation of the, word, the Greek word koinonia. And, and the truth is that there isn't really an English word that properly represents what the word koinonia means. But it basically means people living uh, up close and personal lives with each other. People who are, who are deeply committed to each other, people who are living as if they're blood relatives, people who are known deeply and who deeply know one another, and people who share each other's burdens. And uh, you can see that in verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. <coughs> right. Um, if I could just say, share a little bit of personal testimony in a way. You know, I was talking about Taryn's family. They live in Devon. Uh, and my family live uh, in Hampshire. Uh, you know, the closest relative we have lives hundreds of miles away. Hundreds of miles away. And for, the, you know, for eight years, it's been painful in a way to be so far away from your family. Uh, but the truth is that this has been our family over those eight years and, and um, there have been times where we've missed that you know we had two of our children in Aberdeen and uh, at, at those points when you're absolutely exhausted and full of joy but exhausted uh, you know there were people arriving on our doorstep with casseroles and lasagna and stuff like that which is my love language by the way um, um, and, uh, you know, people giving us baby clothes or lending us equipment, paraphernalia, toys, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and um, we, we needed that. And, and also over the years, we've gone through family bereavement and loss. And, and this church has loved us through it. And there have been times where we've needed people to look us in the eye and to ask us really difficult questions about our discipleship and about our lives. And, and that's, this has been our family to us. And I know that we're not alone. I know that there are loads and loads of people in this church who, who, who would look to these people as our family. We have to offer that to the people who the Lord has to us. And that gets harder as you grow, but we have to do it. We have to behave like family. And, and uh, it's such a rich blessing when we do. Okay, uh, last one. A healthy church learns from its mistakes. So a healthy church makes mistakes, 
and then learn from them. And um, you see, in Acts chapter 4, that you know, the church continues to grow. There's now 5,000 men. The word is male. It's not 5,000 humans. It's 5,000 men. So maybe 10 to 15,000 people, something like that. And it continues to grow. And as it grows, it all starts to go wrong uh, in the nicest possible sense. You know, you've got all these widows, some, some Hebraic widows and some Greek widows. And so, oh, they're getting more than me and I'm not getting enough and I'm hungry and they're looking like they're stuffing their faces. And there's kind of more or less a riot, a kind of a mutiny in the church. And the leaders of the church at that point go back to God and say, God, what do we do now? And they, and they decide to appoint some other people to oversee that particular area of ministry. But the truth is that they make a mistake or, or as things grow, uh, it starts to come apart a bit and then they have to make a decision and they have to learn from what's not working and to make it right. And we'll have to do that. You know, we're going to make mistakes and not everything's going to work quite as we thought it was going to work or sometimes things work for a while and then they stop working. And we're going to have to change and, and that means we have to live with change. But we have to be willing to make mistakes in order that we learn from them. But let me finish with this. My, one of my heroes is Brother Andrew. Uh, Brother Andrew is a, 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 a Dutchman who uh, was a, or has been a missionary for most of his life. Um, in the 1950s, he came across to Glasgow and he went to a, a missionary Bible college in Glasgow. And whilst he was there, he uh, felt really strongly that he should start to visit his Christian brothers and sisters in the communist bloc. And so he started to go across, first of all, to Poland and then to some other countries. And as he did, he'd take stacks of Bibles with him, which was absolutely against the law in these places. And he had this Volkswagen Beetle, and he just used to stuff it full of Bibles. And they'd be plainly in full view of anyone who cared to look into the car and then he'd drive across the border in, into all these places and sometimes they'd make him unload his entire car out onto the pavement to show what he was you know smuggling in his car and and um, either they didn't see the Bibles that were plainly there or or they chose to ignore them and time and time again there were these miraculous kind of moments where, where God intervenes and he's able to take all these Bibles to communist countries. Amazing guy, put his life absolutely on the line time and time again. And then in 1967, they wrote a book about him called God Smuggler and it sold millions of copies, which is awkward when you're wanting to sneak into communist countries with Bibles. And so pretty soon he was not able to do that anymore. And, and, but rather than hanging up his missionary boots, he uh, chose a new area and he started travelling to the Middle East and making friends with the, uh, you know, the PLO and all these kind of different terrorist organisations and giving them Bibles. And uh, doing that right, right until very recently when he's 18, just putting his life on the line, making friends with terrorists. He's an absolutely extraordinary guy. Uh, and he was interviewed recently in a magazine. And I just wanted to finish by reading you what he said. Uh, they asked him this question, is there anything that you could have done or would do differently if you had a second chance? And he said this, if I could do it over, I'd be more radical. I compromised too much. I contemplated when I should have taken action. I made many mistakes, but I don't apologise for that because the greatest mistake is if you do nothing. Should we stand? Let's pray.